It's hump day, and welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast, where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Alan Sanders, host of The Wilder Ride. I'm Walt Murray, co-host of The Wilder Ride. And Walt, we are cruising, we are at the halfway point of the week, cresting the hill, heading to the weekend, which means we only have a handful of episodes left. And we are inside a B-17 bomber flying across America. That is that is correct. And I guess it's now been converted from a a bomber into a uh, a junk carrier. <laughs> a, a cargo plane, a pseudo cargo. Yeah, we'll call it a cargo plane. Well, it's about the best I think you can you you can make out of it. It's obviously been somewhat demilitarized. There's no guns on it. There's no uh, bomb site. The furniture that you would expect for the bombardier and the navigator that would both be in the nose of the plane, that's not there. We just have the three guys who are continuing their conversation as we're watching Homer dexterously get ready to light a match and then everyone's cigarette. Yeah, and have you read, I know we talked about this yesterday about uh, the uh, war in the Atlantic and everything, but have you read any of the books about the air war during World War II, particularly over Europe, and what they did with these planes at the end of the the war? I don't know what they did with the planes. I do know, uh, well, I mean, I say I know. I've watched lots of movies, and I've read some some books about, like, uh, you know, the uh, the air the, the the battle for Britain and the movie Battle for Britain, talking about the the scrambles of the air uh, wings trying to get the bombers that were coming in to try to take out London and other places from uh, from Germany. But that's about it. Kind of more of a high level understanding more than any detail. Okay, so at the end of the war, they had so many of these planes left that they flew them to different airfields around the U.S., pushed them off the end of the runway into pits and buried them. Really? Yep. So, um, B-17s or yep, all of them? All, just in all, all of all like all of these extra planes that they had. Um, Stephen Ambrose wrote a book called The Wild Blue. And it's the men and boys who flew the B-24s over Germany in 1944 to 45. And I read that book probably 10 years ago. And I was kind of scanning back through it last night after we uh, got done recording, and I had totally forgotten about that. But he talks about how they decommissioned, took everything off of them um, that had any military significance. You know, the bomb sites were all top secret how they did that. Pushed them into pits and buried them. So there are tons of them buried in the desert, uh, buried off of all these old military runways. And my dad was telling me that his hometown had an air or airport that my grandfather hung out at all the time. It's now a civilian airport, but they buried tons of planes and plane parts there. And my uncle used to go dig them up and play with them. So they had all these like army helmets and, um, you know, the breathing apparatus that they used. Uh, they actually found bomb sites that they practiced with. And, and they would play with all that stuff uh, there at the airport. Okay. Now, that's wild. That, I mean, that, talk about a wilder ride. That is wild. That is, that is crazy. But I, I hadn't really thought about um, just how, you know, until we started going through this, uh, how there must have just been tens of thousands of these planes around. And what do you do with them? I mean, you sell some off for, you know, 
commercial use, you keep some in military use, but I mean, you literally go from a, a status where we're fighting two wor- two wars in two different parts of the world. We're about to invade Japan, and we knew we'd need tens of thousands of them to wars over, going home, decommission everything. That's crazy. It is. But I mean, you, the amount of money you would need to spend to retrofit for any other purpose when you've got an excess. I mean, that's as far, you know, as long as I've been around either in the Fortune 100 companies that have so much money and so much asset built up. Like, I remember one day I was basically just asked, hey, do you got some extra time? We need to we need to uh, shrink some uh, shrink wrap some computers. I was like, shrink wrap? Like, yeah, we're sending them all to be crushed and destroyed. And it was just pallets and pallets and pallets of old PC cases, old laptops, all of them working, all good, just maybe three, four years old. But it was just cheaper to the company to write them off and destroy them than to either resell them, which would take effort and time and tracking, or to give them to charity. They decided it's just easier to wrap them up and crush and destroy. I remember when they did that because we were asking about them. We were like, hey, well, can we buy ours? And they said, no, it has, uh, you know, company information on it that we can't let get out. So, you know, we just got to destroy them. And, and we were like, but we're employees. <laughs> but we're employees. And you could wipe the hard drive. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we did. And we mentioned that, too. And they were like, nope, sorry, they get destroyed. So no, it's just it's somewhere up the up the up the chain. Some some accountant at a higher level in the organization does all the uh, the little, you know, calculations and has all the tables and the actuarials and looks at his little calculator and says, you know what? We're going to save an extra, you know, I don't know, 10% by just collecting and destroying than it would take the manpower to sell or give. We don't get the return and charity. It's better to destroy. And it's just, it blew my mind that it was just easier and quicker to destroy perfectly good pieces of equipment. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it really is. It, it is bananas that that is better. So, I mean, I th- th- that's... When you say it, I go, wow, but that's the MO of not just, I think, large government, but I think large organizations in general. They're so big, they'd lose money slowing down to try to do something good (laughs) with the assets that they don't need anymore. Yeah, and you know they're already giving away tens of thousands of computers a year to school districts and things like that. Well, they're more incentive to give away brand new ones off the line where all they have to do is just divert where they're shipped rather than have to spend the manpower and hours of packing them up, getting the equipment, seeing if it's got everything that you need to give to somebody. And then do you want the headache of them saying, you know, this free computer, well, it didn't come with a cable I need to hook up. Like, you know what? You got it for free. Go buy a cable. Well, you gave it to me. You know, just less headache, less problem. I get that piece of it. Trust me. But it's it's one of those things where you feel like, I I know on paper, it's it's the right financial decision. (laughs) It just... In my head, feels weird. We're destroying these things. Well, and you and you think about for the the military after World War II with all these planes, where would you put them? And they're never going to fly again unless there's another world war that breaks out while they're still state of the art equipment. So, well, and the other thing is they're already making such advances and moving to the next generation of of all kind of aircraft at this point. I mean the the development that was going on in the the R&D, I mean, they already had four or five generations of B-17 just in its, you know, short run. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And then, you know, the B-24s came out. And so 
You did. You were progressing fast. And then by Korea, you know, you've got um, jets that start showing up. By Vietnam, you have uh, very few propeller-driven aircraft, and it's mostly jets. And so, yeah, I mean, in a very short amount of time, those planes were antiques. Yeah, think about this. The helicopter was initially pioneered for some basic stuff in World War II, and look how far it advanced by the time we got to Vietnam. Yeah, well, even in Korea, you know, you're hauling um, the wounded off the battlefields with them. Right. And uh, so, yeah, the the technology went fast. So anyway, so if anybody's interested, the, the, the book is called The Wild Blue by Stephen Ambrose, who wrote a ton of stuff on World War II and uh, some other assorted history. So worth worth checking out. I'm glad I thought about that last night. All right. Well, let's go ahead and remind everybody where we are at the start. We're up in the cockpit. Well, I say the cockpit, but technically we're right below. We're in the nose of the plane. We've got Dana Andrews playing Captain Fred Derry, Frederick March playing Sergeant Al Stevenson, and Harold Russell playing Homer Parrish, a sailor who we are surmising is from the Pacific Fleet. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Harold here in this scene. When we last left, it's like, wait a second, I, I got a match, and reached in to grab a matchbook. He reached into his shirt, pulled up a matchbook, and then he opened it up, grabbed a match, and was just about to strike. And in the beginning of this minute, he goes ahead and lights the match, and then he goes around and goes person to person, and he goes to light, you know, Fred's cigarette. He says thanks. Then he goes to Al's cigarette. Al says thank you. And then this is something kind of interesting. I don't know if you looked it up. But he says, anybody superstitious? No, no, go ahead. Referring to getting ready to light the third cigarette. I was wondering about that. I was hoping you would look that up. So the GIs in the field, and, and this is where I was wondering yesterday, how does a sailor hear this? But the GIs in the field realized that sometimes at night when they would light up a cigarette, the Germans would be like, okay, we know there's at least one enemy soldier there. And they would wait. And in their minds, they would say, at the first sight of the match, it's pay attention, be ready. The second, aim. And by the third match, fire. So the Germans would technically wait till that third light of the cigarette before they would open fire. So if they're going to reveal their position by firing, they wanted to make sure there was at least a couple of individuals all grouped together. And so the superstition was never light more than two cigarettes at a time. Because the third means if you're being targeted, the Germans may open fire at you for, at your location. Very interesting. It was all superstition. I mean, you could just shoot at one person who's ever lighting the match. But it was, for some reason, the saying that went around the fleet or around soldiers that, you know, get ready at one, aim at two, then fire at three. Interesting. Okay. That, I, I could not figure that one out. No, I hadn't either until, you know, when I watched this scene, I was like, is this a real superstition? And then I looked up and it truly was. The question, though, that I still want to know is, how does a sailor who's nowhere near the European theater, or at least soldiers on the ground, how would he know that? And I guess maybe the rumor would have gone around. Who knows? It could have been soldiers that they came into contact with on board or people that he ran into on shore leave that we're talking about, you know, some of the superstitions. Right, right. Well, and he, he doesn't mention it, but I, I wonder if he's got a, rel a relative or somebody else who's fighting in Europe. It could very well be. And 
you know, enough people are coming across others on the ship. And, you know, as we learned, the fleet had lots of different missions, and some of them might have been to transport troops to different destinations, as well as gear and other equipment. You know, obviously planes if you're on a carrier. So it could very well be that his experience, he ran across a number of different soldiers or military personnel that were being ferried from one point. Yeah, very well could be. And and you know what? In the military, I mean, a lot of this stuff does just get around. It just feels weird that this superstition's coming out of a sailor versus a GI. Yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, he had probably been around enough GIs and Marines. And you're and you're right too. That stuff does spread really fast. Yeah. It is an interesting here's a guy that's already been injured. He's in a plane and above American soil, heading home. And yet it's so ingrained in him, this superstition, that he doesn't want to take a chance of writing the third cigarette. You know, it's bad luck. <laughs> that is funny. And I guess he would have also been in a hospital with a bunch of, you know, probably uh, army and Marines. Um, so, yeah, that probably spread around pretty quick. What's cool here is because he decides on lighting his own cigarette, we go through the whole motion again. We get to watch him pull out another match, pull it out, set it up, light it, and then lights his own cigarette, puts it out, and then moves the cigarette to a more comfortable position in the other arm. And then the conversation continues. Look, I'm still mesmerized watching the dexterity of this actor and you know this true veteran of, of the military, this true veteran of World War II. Yeah, me too. And he is a real pro smoking too. He wasn't just uh, smoking for this scene. You can tell that this guy knows how to smoke. Who didn't really at this point. Yeah, that's true. It's a definite different time. I mean, I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. These guys, they would get their MREs or meals ready to eat, their C rations, whatever they happen to be. They all came with a pack of cigarettes. Oh, yeah, right. So, you know, there was a deal with, I think it was Winston and I know uh, Wrigley's gum. There was a deal where you'd get packets of chewing gum inside your rations. And then so after your meal, you could have a stick of gum, you know, you could have a cigarette. I know Budweiser, I mean, there was a big, you know, agreement or contract with the military and it was with the Navy and the Army to supply beer. Yeah, that was one of the things my dad used to talk about is hauling Budweiser all over Vietnam in his helicopter. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, you put your guys under a lot of pressure and, and you know, the higher-ups understand when you have some downtime and you can decompress, you know, let them, oh. you know, let them blow off some steam. Absolutely. Speaking of, here's the line here. It, this goes to show the sense of humor and sort of the positivity that Homer has about himself. Now, we don't know at this point in the movie, is this an act? Does he really have some serious hangups or other problems? But, I mean, so far, he's been sort of affable about his disability and his two prosthetic arms. You know, as soon as he takes a puff of his cigarette, he goes, Boy, you ought to see me open a bottle of beer. <laughs> and everyone laughs. Like, all of them. All three of them are enjoying that that line. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and he's probably, you know, within that military confine, he's probably in a decently safe place because 
these guys have all seen combat. They've all seen guys get injured. So nobody's really going to treat him awkwardly or weird too much compared to what he is going to experience out in right. You know, the real world, the non-military world, more civilian or, you know, people are not used to seeing those kinds of injuries. Right. There is a great line here. And I think it's interesting that Fred uses a try to get Homer to maybe reveal more of his story because you know, there's got to be a curiosity there because you want to know how did you lose your hands? But it's a little insensitive to, at the start of the conversation, start it that way. Right. So after the line about the bottle of beer, Al jokingly says, And you got nothing to worry about. Yeah, because, you know, if you can open a bottle of beer, you're good. Then Fred says, Because you saw a lot of action. You know, making the assumption that that must have been how you lost your hands. Right. And once again, the story does a, at least it did for me, does an an unexpected turn because I'm expecting, yeah, we got, you know, some Japanese submarines sunk two torpedoes into our side, chief. You know, something like that, you know. Right. All he says is, No, I didn't see much of the war. I mean, the way you fellas did. And he's talking about them, like, they were the ones involved in combat or, you know, they're dropping bombs, they're involved in firefights. But Al's like, well, he's like what are, you, are you, you trying to kid the army? And, you know, what are, you, are you trying to pull my leg? You know, I get your Navy, I'm army. You know, what are you trying to do? And he said, no, I was stationed in the repair shop below decks. Oh, I was in plenty of battles. And I never saw a Jap or heard a shell coming at me. When we were sunk, all I know is there was a lot of fire and explosions and and I was on the topsides and, and overboard, and I was burned. When I came to, I was on a cruiser. My hands were off. So he was a mechanic, you know, a grease monkey. He was below deck yeah, right, until, uh, right until the ship was sinking, and he was told, you know, all hands on deck. Yeah, and it is interesting because he said, I was in a lot of battles, but I never saw a Japanese sailor or anything like that until that bomb went through our deck. Everybody had to abandon ship. So obviously the aircraft carrier going down. Yeah. That must have been a heck of a fight. That's a bad day. That's a huge vessel compared to the rest of the other ships. You know, similar to today, the aircraft carrier is still like the biggest ship in the fleet. Yeah. And we don't lose them very often. They are tough to bring down. So that was a, that was a big deal. So he goes overboard and then he says, I was burned, and when I came to, I was on a cruiser, and my hands were off. We don't really know specifically, you know, he just said, I was burned, so he got some kind of a significant injury, enough that the decision was made to save his life or give him the best chance of survival. It would be better to amputate both, uh, both of the injured areas and basically lose both the hands. Well, I'm sure with that kind of injury going in the salt water and when a ship goes down, you know, there's oil and grease and everything else there. So high risk of infection. Um, I, unfortunately, I'm sure that was probably the best decision. You know, you try to put your mind around how quickly this sums up. You know, I'm not the hero. I just repair things. You know, I was below deck. I didn't know what was going on until my ship was starting to go down. And then I was told, get out there. And there was all these explosions and fire and then jump overboard. And, you know, he doesn't even really say how he was injured. Just he says, I I was burned. And next thing I know, my hands are off. It's funny how matter of fact is he 
um, how matter of fact he is about that. Right. And this is where I'm saying, look, because I don't want to ever telegraph to the other folks that, because there's a lot coming up in this movie and we're always trying to stay sort of focused in the moment. But so far, at least to us, he seems to be telegraphing to us that he's okay with his injury. He understands others may feel uncomfortable and he seems to do what he can to make other people feel better or to settle them so they don't have to feel weird. We don't know if that's an act still. I mean, I just, just throwing it out there. How well adjusted is he really with his injury? Is he just well adjusted among other military folks or will it shift once he's, you know, home and he gets around his mom and dad or the girlfriend you know, other people that he's grown up with, when they see that, will they be able to accept it as easily as we've seen two other military veterans do? Right. And I think, um, I, my, like, if you just take him for what he is up to this point, you take him as a solid guy, well-grounded, good sense of humor, and that he has accepted what he, what has happened to him. So. Up to this point, that's kind of my read on him. Yeah, he seems well-adjusted, at least to me at this point. But then again, all three of them do. You know, they all have moments where we're seeing, like what Sergeant Stevenson says, you know, it's felt like it's been a couple of centuries since I've been home. We get the sense that they realize it's going to be weird going back. And, you know, Fred says, I know what you mean. And then we hear the sailor story. But so far, it's three guys that seem pretty well adjusted to what they've been through and getting ready for civilian life. I mean, they're showing maybe what would be the typical apprehension in places, but so far, nothing too jarring, at least not at this moment in the movie. No, no, not to this point. All right. I know this was a little bit shorter, but I think in the next couple of minutes, we're going to cover, there's a lot of There's a lot going on with the dialogue. It's all kind of together. And I know we've had fun talking about planes and bombers and bomber runs. But, you know, as far as this moment, was there anything in your notes that you still want to cover or talk about? No. Like you said, this is uh, kind of a compact minute. So I think we've covered it pretty well. I just I would encourage if you're just listening to the podcast and you haven't really seen the movie or it's been a while and, you know, it may be available online in places. Just watch the dexterity in which this actor does all of the moves with the the matchstick. And, you know, here's this wounded veteran who's for real wounded and just watching him maneuver through this scene that we've talked about. Because, you know, it's still, to me, incredible to watch when you look at the the dexterity that he's developed in using these prosthetic arms. Yeah, I'm pretty blown away by this guy. So as we wrap this up, and we've just got a couple more minutes to go, and... They're going to continue this conversation. These guys are still trying to make their way toward home, toward normality. Before we close off this minute, Walt, why don't you tell people a little bit more about how they can learn a little bit more about our Wilder Ride podcast? Well, probably the the way that you should do it today is to go over to facebook.com slash the Wilder Ride. That's kind of our introduction uh, page there. And so you'll want to follow us. And then you want to join the listeners group, and that button will pop up right behind. Answer three quick questions just to make sure you're an actual living, breathing person. And our uh, listeners group has news about our podcast, 
uh, news about actors and actresses that we've covered and whatever else uh, comes up in the entertainment world. No politics, no fighting, no none of that stuff. Uh, just good, wholesome fun for your day. And if you are listening to this and somebody may have sent it to you via a social media link and you would like to subscribe, this show is actually available via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Of course, you can visit thebestminutes.com website. And if you want to get involved in social media with us or any of the following teams of people that will be carrying this movie forward in the minute-by-minute minute format, why don't you check out on Facebook, Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe, or check out Twitter, The Best Minutes. And I encourage you, come on back tomorrow, Thursday, as we continue the conversation, and we're going to find out maybe a little bit more about the two other guys. We've had the sailor story kind of highlighted, but you know the other two guys haven't really mentioned a whole lot. They're still on the plane, and we still have a couple of minutes to go while they're flying home. But to find out what happens, you got to come back tomorrow for another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Hey, just another hop, skip, and a jump for us. Wow, that was uh, that's pretty impressive. Now I know why some of these people like to, you know, take their episodes and go boom, boom, boom. Let's get her done. Yeah, well, this was a this was a good minute to demonstrate how we can actually get in under thirty minutes. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.